Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. This time, I am recording from Seattle, which is awesome. I love the Space Needle. You'll hear about that later on the show. But this episode is recorded together with my generous host here just before I leave for home, Steve, who runs the Baked and Wake podcast. And in the show notes, you will see that we'll provide links. You should go and check out that show, too. This episode is going to be about CIA documentation. And we're going to take a look at it, we're going to analyze it from my historical perspective and from his conspiracy theory perspective, which is really interesting too. But we're going to do that, and the first part of the episode is going to be me reading this CIA document in full, because I believe that's important. And then the second part of the show is going to be our discussion with Stephen from Bait and Awake about this whole thing. Before that, I have some special thank yous to, to say to people, and first of all... Rachel and Leon, you are the most amazing people ever in Vancouver. I love you. You are the greatest and the best, and thank you for having me over. You truly inspired me, and Leon basically got my mind in order. He's a great guy. And also Rob Stu from Vancouver Island. He, by the way, runs Roto-Rooter Plumbing, so if you need that done, you know, please go there. Ask for Rob Stu, because he does that thing. But yeah, these nice Canadian people had me out there. It was really cool. And I'm really glad for the help they showed me and for the mental aid that I received there too because it was really hard for me for a bit. But now I'm much better. And um, hey, Canada is a pretty cool place, eh? <laughs> Honestly speaking, Canada's really great. And I'm bringing Poutine and Trailer Park Boys back home. And that's awesome. But yeah, right now I am back in Seattle where I leave and I'm with Stephen. And we're doing this, and even though this is probably the first episode of the Eastern Border where, you know, I am slightly stoned, but that's fine. That's fine, really. Uh, the first part was okay. So I'm going to read you this document now, and then we're going to analyze it. Hope you'll enjoy this. Here we go. National Cultural Development Under Communism Muslims of Russia Tatars of the Volga and the Crimea Kyrgyz and Sarts of Siberia and Turkestan 
Turks and Tatars of Transcaucasia, Chechens and mountain peoples of the Caucasus, and all you whose mosques and prayer houses have been destroyed, whose beliefs and customs have been trampled upon by the Tsars and the oppressors of Russia. Henceforth, your beliefs and customs, your national and cultural institutions are forever free and inviolate. Organize your national life in complete freedom. This is your right. Thus read, in part, a proclamation issued on 7th of December 1917 by the Bolsheviks over the signatures of Lenin and Stalin, addressed to all Muslim toilers of Russia and the East. The Bolsheviks had realized that if their revolution was to be a complete success, and if they were to be able to consolidate their newly won power, the support of Russia's minority peoples, including the Muslims, was essential. Hence this proclamation. Other pronouncements designed for the same purpose were also issued. For example, a previous declaration, also signed by Lenin and Stalin, issued on 15th of November 1917, had stated, quote, The Council of People's Commissars had decided to base its activities with regard to the nationalities of Russia on the following principles. Equality and sovereignty of the nations of Russia. Number two, the right of nations to free self-determination, including the right to secede and form independent states. Number three, abolition of all national and national religious privileges and restrictions whatsoever. And number four, freedom of development for the national minorities and ethnographic groups inhabiting the territory of Russia. The Muslim peoples of Russia had, at the time, no way of knowing how little a Bolshevik, i.e. communist, promise meant. The two declarations, therefore, at first kindled great hopes among them. Colonial subjects of the Tsar, whose lands had been forcibly incorporated into and held as part of the Russian Empire, they fervently desired national independence, and these proclamations seemed an open invitation to them to declare their freedom from Russian rule and to create their own national states. The Tsarist regime, therefore, appeared as the chief enemy of the Muslims as of the Bolsheviks, so the former were easily persuaded to cooperate with the latter. Disillusionment was rapid. Muslim leaders were at first feasted and feted by the Bolsheviks, but as the power of the latter grew, they soon showed that their promises had been only a tactical manure. The newly established independent Muslim governments were ruthlessly suppressed by the Red Army and the Russian rule reimposed as the Bolsheviks forgot their promises to recognize the right of self-determination. The history of the communists during the 40 years they have been in power in the Soviet Union shows that self-determination has not been the only subject on which they have betrayed both their promises and their alleged doctrine. Throughout their years of power, and especially since World War II, in their propaganda to the peoples of Asia and Africa, the communists have boasted of their success in solving the nationalities problem by building a multinational state in which every nationality is equal and has full opportunity for a free national cultural development. A brief examination of the record, however, shows that the permitted opportunity for national cultural development is severely limited where it exists at all, and is, in any case, without exception, so controlled and warped as to serve not the needs and aspirations of the various peoples, but only the interests of the Communist Party and Great Russian Chauvinism. Let us, for example, consider the position of Islam. In the Muslim regions of Russia, as in Muslim lands everywhere at that time, Islam was the heartstone around which the life of its devotees revolved, or rather did revolve, until the communists violated their promises and made it impossible for Muslims to perform their religious duties. As we have seen, the November 1917 proclamation promised Muslims that they would be free to continue in the practice of their faith. Even some years before the revolution, in an article entitled To the Rural Poor, Lenin had written, quote, Everyone must be perfectly free not only to belong to whatever religion he pleases, 
but he must be free to disseminate his religion and to change his religion. No official should be entitled to ask anyone about his religion. It is a matter for that person's conscience, and no one has any business to interfere. A decree to the separation of church from state, issued 5th of February 1918, declared in Article 3 that every citizen may profess any religion or none. In Article 5 that free practice of religious rights is guaranteed, and in Article 9 that citizens may teach and study religion privately. Once the communists had consolidated their power, however, they began to reel their true nature, to violate their earlier promises and to take repressive acts. Lands belonging to mosques were confiscated by a decree in 1918. Muslim religious brotherhoods were outlawed during the period of 1921 to 1922, and a campaign was launched to ridicule Islam and to undermine the influence of the spiritual leaders of the Muslim peoples. Freedom to teach religion had been defended by Lenin before the revolution and guaranteed by law immediately after the revolution, but soon Article 122 of a new criminal code made it a crime, carrying punishment of one year's correctional labor to teach religion to children and minors, either in public or in private. In 1929, a direct attack on Islam was begun, which included measures that made active religious life virtually impossible. Islamic leadership was eliminated by the arrest and deportation, if not liquidation, of almost all persons enjoying any religious status. Nearly all village and most city mosques were closed. Religious literature was suppressed through the changing of alphabets, the confiscation of existing religious texts, including the Quran, and the suppression of all publications of a religious nature. And anyone in a responsible position was dismissed if known to be a pious and practicing Muslim. Muslims were to be free to practice their beliefs and customs. That was the Bolshevik promise. But is not Islam part of those beliefs? Is it not the most vital and most deeply cherished part of Muslim life? Yet the communists, in spite of their commitment, have suppressed Islam ruthlessly. Take the matter of mosques, for example. When the communists came to power in 1917, there were 7,000 mosques in European Russia alone, in addition to the unnumbered thousands in Muslim Central Asia, the Caucasus and Transcaucasia, and the Crimea. But in 1942, the communists themselves admitted that there were then only 1,312 mosques in the whole of the Soviet Union. The others had been confiscated and converted into warehouses or stores or otherwise desecrated or allowed to fall into ruins. Yet, in the November 1917 proclamation, the Bolsheviks had condemned the Tsars for destroying mosques and prayer houses and called for Muslim support so that such actions could be brought to an end. Although a few mosques have been built in the post-war period and a few others repaired, the situation is little better than it was in 1942. In Tashkent, for example, where once 300 mosques grazed the city before the communists came to power, there are today only 20. Samarkand, which formerly had over a hundred, today has only seventeen, of which only one is permitted to be used. Bokhara, which one boasted of three hundred and sixty, has also only one today. Almata, a Muslim town for centuries and the capital of the Muslim Republic of Kazakhstan, has not a single mosque, nor are any to be found in such a large Muslim centers as Krasnodovsk, Ashabad, or Stalinabad. The same story holds true for the madrasas, or religious schools. Before the communist regime, there were at least 8,000. The 103 madrasas, which there were once the pride of Bukhara's Muslims and which used to train 16,000 mullahs annually, are no more. Today there is only one, the only one, in fact, in the entire Soviet Union, which has a mere 105 students who follow a nine-year course.
Such is the manner in which the communists honor their promise to respect Muslim beliefs and customs. Muslim national and cultural institutions. The same fate that befell the mosques and madraskas has also been the fate of the Sharia, the holy law of Islam. This too the communists promised to respect, but we know what the communist promise means. Speaking to the Dagestani people at Temir Khan Shura, now Buinantk, on 13th of November 1920, Stalin declared, We are informed that the Sharia has great importance for the peoples of Dagestan. We are also informed that the enemies of Soviet power are spreading rumors that the Soviet regime would ban the Sharia. I am authorized to declare on behalf of the government of the RSFSR that these rumors are lies. The government of Russia leaves to every people the full right to administer itself on the basis of its own laws and customs. The Soviet government considers the Sharia as customary law of the same standing as that in force among the other peoples living in Russia. If it is the desire of the people of the Dagestan, their laws and customs shall be preserved. This is a fine assuring statement, for could there be a cleaner and more binding commitment of the part of the communists to respect the Sharia? Unfortunately, it did not mean anything, for it was only another example of the fact that the communists constantly say one thing and then do another. The truth is that Stalin knew he was speaking a lie, knew that the communists had no intention of respecting the Sharia, for only a month earlier, in an article published on the 10th of October 1920, Issue of Pravda, which of course the Dagestanis had not seen or nor had any way of knowing about, he had declared, quote, If, for instance, the Dagestani masses who are profoundly imbued with religious prejudices follow the communists, quote, on the basis of Sharia, end quote, it is obvious that the direct methods of combating religious prejudices in this country must be replaced by indirect and more cautious methods. In other words, political expediency required the communists to make promises now and break them later. This is exactly what the communists did. The Soviet government, for a time, allowed the Sharia to continue in force. In 1922, it even established Sharia courts in Turkestan, and then later, in 1924 to 1925, in the course of the agrarian reform, had recourse to these courts to obtain favorable declarations from the Muslim divines. But once they could serve their purpose, all Sharia courts were abolished, especially after the initiation of the vigorous anti-Islam campaign in 1929. As the January 1950 issue of the Soviet periodical Sovietskoye Gosudarstvo i Prava put it, Quote, Stalinist precepts, when carried out, quickly led to the elimination of the old-fashioned beliefs in the usefulness of the Sharia. And before long, Sharia eliminated itself and was liquidated. I'm sorry, dear listeners, the bottom of this page is covered by the approved for release document number, so it's hard to read those. Stalin, in 1920, had praised the Sharia as Muslim customary law, but in the Soviet political dictionary published in 1940, describes it as, quote, a means for keeping the workers in economic and political subordination by the rich. It legalizes domination, exploitation, and slavery of the workers, the enslavement of women. And states flatly that, quote, in the USSR now, the Sharia is eradicated. Stalin in 1920 praised the Sharia as Muslim customary law, but Kizil Uzbekistan, on May 1949, approximately he was there, <clears throat> described it as, quote, a collection of laws which are among the most ignoble and unjust in the world, end quote. Such is the manner in which communists honor their promises, the way in which they respect Muslim beliefs and customs, Muslim national and cultural institutions. The communists have not been content to close mosques and madraskas, support the Sharia and liquidate Muslim religious leaders. They even insult the Islamic faith itself and its holy prophet. God bless and keep him. One communist writer, in setting forth the official party line, described Islam 
as a, quote, primitive and fanatical religion, end quote, which is a chaotic mixture of Christian, Jewish, and pagan doctrines. And Bagirov, the apostate first secretary of the Azerbaijan Communist Party, a speech printed in the 14th of July 1950 issue of Babinski Rabochi from Baku, called the Prophet Muhammad, may God bless and keep him, a representative of the feudal mercantile aristocracy of Mecca who utilized Islam for the unification of the Arab tribes and for the maintenance of their own power, end quote. Yet despite these blasphemies against Islam and Muhammad, may God bless and keep him, the communists are today trying to persuade the Muslim peoples of Africa, Asia and the Middle East that they have no better friends than the communists. The Holy Quran makes incumbent upon every true believer of the faithful observance of the five pillars of Islam, profession of the faith, prayer, almsgiving, fasting and pilgrimage. These all formed an integral part of the beliefs and customs of the Muslim peoples of Russia, which the communists promised to respect. But today, the pillars are prescribed in the Soviet Union. Only the profession of the faith can be made without hindrance, but even this must be done in secret unless the pious Muslim wishes to run the risk of being subjugated to pressure, economic or otherwise, on the part of the authorities. Prayer, too, is impossible for the same reason. In any case, the Muslim worker is not permitted to leave his work to recite his prayers at the anointed times, and the communal Friday prayer is precluded by the absence of mosques and by the fact that the Kremlin has decreed that Muslims must observe Sunday rather than the traditional Muslim Friday as the weekly day of rest. The younger generation, having been deprived of religious instruction, is further handicapped by its ignorance of the prayers. Fasting during the holy month of Ramadan is almost impossible. A Muslim worker, if he should decide to defy the communist ban on fasting, is nevertheless forced to do a full day's work, and the penalty for failing to perform in accordance to assigned work norm is severe. Consequently, fasting has been made virtually physically impossible. Moreover, as a means of enforcing the ban, Muslims are frequently subjected to tests during Ramadan. For example, they may be called in for a conference by their superiors and there offered a drink or a cigarette. Refusal to accept is tantamount to an admission of fasting and they may well lead to dismissal if not to more severe punishment. Almsgiving, or zakat, is rigorously prohibited by law. The criminal codes of the Uzbek, Tajik and Turkmen republics, as well as that of the RSFSR, which is also enforced in the Kyrgyz and Kazakh republics, provide criminal penalties for the collection of such religious tithes. The fifth pillar, the Hajj, or pilgrimage, was banned by the communists from early days of their regime. As a result of wartime concessions, the ban was lifted in 1944, only to be reimposed in 1947. While the ban was again lifted after Stalin's death, this was more in theory than in practice, for the only Soviet Muslims to have made the trip to Mecca have been faithful communists whose purpose in making the Hajj is not primarily to fulfill any religious duty, but to propagandize. The ordinary Soviet Muslim is still prevented from making the pilgrimage. Such is the matter in which the communists have respected Muslim beliefs and customs, Muslim traditional and cultural institutions. Let us turn now to a consideration of some other aspects of Muslim life and culture in the Soviet Union. The 7th All-Russian Conference of the Russian Social Democrat Labour Party, the former name of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, in April 1917, adopted a resolution which read, in part, quote, The party demands wide regional autonomy, the abolition of a compulsory state language. This was part of the Bolshevik campaign to win the support of Russia's minority peoples. A people's language is without doubt the most treasured part of its culture, and a people will fight as hard, if not harder, to preserve that heritage as to win political independence. The Bolsheviks knew this. Stalin, in fact, in his Marxism and the National Question, had written, 
A minority is discontented not because there is no national union, but because it does not enjoy the right to use its native language. Permit it to use its native language, and the discontent will pass off itself. Once the Bolsheviks had consolidated their power, however, this liberal view of the language question began to change, and great Russian chauvinism once again began to emerge. Lenin saw the danger, and in a letter written on 31st of December 1922, not meant for general publication, he warned that, quote, it is necessary to set the strictest rules concerning the use of national languages in the national republics, which enter in the Union and to abide by those rules with special carefulness. There is no doubt that under the pretext of unity of the railroad service, under the pretext of fiscal unity and so forth, with our present apparatus, a massive abuses of genuinely Russian character will take place. After Lenin's death, the trend he had foreseen gathered more and more strength as the Soviet leaders forgot their early promise not to accord special rights to any single language. The climax came on 13th of March 1938, when the Kremlin issued a decree which made the teaching of Russian henceforth obligatory in all national minority schools. Today Russian is not only taught in all schools, but has also, through the force of political, economic and legal pressures, become the language of all business and social life in every part of the Soviet Union. Every Soviet citizen, regardless of his national origin, is compelled to make use of it if he is to achieve any success in his career, whatever that may be. Coursework at universities and other higher educational institutions in the USSR, even those located in Muslim areas, is carried on in Russian. This not only strengthens the privileged position of Russian, but it keeps many minority youths from obtaining advanced education, since their training in the Russian language has been so poor that they do not qualify. As a result, only a small percentage of the graduates of educational institutions in Muslim areas are actually Muslim. For example, in March 1947, the rector of the Kazakh State University admitted that since the university's founding in 1934, only 17% of all graduates were Kazakh. Similarly, of the 1,100 students graduated by the Uzbek State University in Samarkand from 1927 to 1947, only slightly more than half were Asiatics, the rest having been Russians and others of European descent. Parallel examples can also be adopted for all other Muslim areas and their higher educational institutions. Not only have the communists violated their promise not to institute a compulsory state language, but they have also been making a determined effort to Russianize the various minority languages. Communist writers and grammarians are trying slowly to change the structure of the minority languages to make them conform as much as possible with the Russian model. And when new words are needed in a language, the communists do not permit them to be formed from native roots, but require that they be adapted from the Russian equivalents. Illustrative of this is the statement of the Russian press speaking of a linguistics conference which met at Baku in January 1951. Quote, the duty of linguists is to write really scientific works on the origin and history of the language, in doing which they must fully show the favorable influence of the Russian language on it, and must establish the identical elements in the two languages. The language must be encoded and wildly used around in place of uh, the words from native languages. Carrying on. The above quotation was in reference specifically to the Azerbaijani language, but the same principles are being applied to all minority languages, including those spoken by the various Muslim peoples. Violence has also been done to the minority languages in another manner. The Muslim peoples of Central Asia and the Caucasus at the time of the 1917 revolution had long used the Arabic script for their languages. As part of their campaign against Islam and in order to weaken the ties between Russia's Muslims and the Muslims of other lands, the Kremlin in the 1920s decreed that henceforth all minority languages should be written in Latin alphabets. Then a decade later, a new change was ordered and Cyrillic scripts replaced the recently adopted Latin ones. 
In neither case were the wishes of the minority peoples taken into consideration. The communists in Moscow simply decided that these far-reaching changes should be made and then force them upon the people. Such is the communist idea of free natural cultural development. One aspect of the linguistic heritage of any people is its literature, for it is in its literature that a people's language is preserved and perpetuated. But consider what this communist dictating change of alphabets meant. The new generations, since they would be taught only the new script, were cut off from free access to their nation's literature, from the Soviet government, being in complete control of all printing establishments, could and did authorize republication in the new scripts only of such works as it decided would serve the interests of the Communist Party. The fact is that since the imposition of Cyrillic scripts, almost all of the books published in the various minority languages have been translations of Russian works, especially the writings of Lenin, Stalin, and other Communist Party theoreticians. Traditional native literary works remain unpublished and hence are not available to the present and future generations. This situation is especially grievous for Muslim youth since the Soviet government does not permit the publication of almost all Islamic works. The communists have at the same time begun a systematic campaign to ridicule and denounce the native folk literature as a means of justifying their suppression of it. The great Kyrgyz epic Manas, portraying the struggle between the Kyrgyz people and the Chinese, once viewed with favor by the Soviets, are now condemned as anti-popular, reactionary, and an idealization of Khans and feudal lords. The Azerbaijani epic Dede Korut, which is also the Turkmen epic under the name Korkut Atta, once considered as an example of the highest type of popular poetry and of people's expression, has somehow, in communist eyes, become a reactionary bourgeoisie poem. Kublan Dibantir, the Kazakh epic, is no longer a paean of national virtue and valor, but low patter extolling violence and brigandine, steeped in the position of hatred of other peoples. Kublan Dibatir, the Kazakh epic, is no longer a paean of national virtue and valor, but, quote, low patter extolling violence and brigandine, steeped in the poison of hatred of other peoples in reactionary Muslim ideology and ideas of pan-Islamic supremacy, as have a multitude of works of lesser stature. The fact is that the communists condemned and therefore prevent the publication of all Muslim literary works except those few which extol the virtues of Russia and the Russians. Such is the manner in which the communists respect Muslim beliefs and customs, Muslim national and cultural institutions. Or let us take the matter of history which, along with religion, language and literature, constitute the core of people's cultural heritage. Here again the communists have interfered in a shameless manner. For example, on 9th August 1944, the Central Committee of the Communist Party, sitting in Moscow, issued a directive ordering the party's Tartar Provincial Committee, quote, to proceed to a scientific revision of the history of Tartaria, to liquidate serious shortcomings and mistakes of a nationalistic character committed by individual writers and historians in dealing with Tartar history. In other words, Tartar history was to be rewritten, let us be frank, was to be falsified, in order to eliminate references to great Russian aggressions and to hide the facts of the real course of Tartar-Russian relations. And this was no isolated case. In every Muslim area within the USSR, historians on orders of the Communist Party have rewritten history to distort the facts so that the Russians appear always in a good light. Needless to say, histories which present the facts truthfully have been withdrawn and destroyed, so that the present and future generations of Muslims are forever denied the chance of learning the true facts of their nation's past. Such is the manner in which communists respect Muslim beliefs and customs, Muslim national and cultural institutions. The resurgence of great Russian chauvinism, especially since World War II, has also resulted in the campaign to vilify the historic heroes of the various Muslim peoples. For example, as late as 1947, Ken Seari Kasimov, 
the leader of the 1837-1846 Kazakh resistance to Russian aggression, and the national hero of the Kyrgyz as well, was accepted by the communists as a fighter for national liberation. But in June 1949, in an article on Kazakh history, declared that Kennesari's policy directed at the creation of a centralized state was an expression of his usurpatorial efforts to subordinate all other holders of power to himself. On 26th of December 1950, Pravda published a virulent attack on the mistakes of historians of Kazakhstan and made Kennesari and his brother out as black villains. Communist, great Russian interests required that his name be besmirched, so Kazakh history was rewritten. And the communists call this free cultural development. Or take the case of Shamil, the great hero of Caucasian resistance to Russian aggression, who has received the same treatment as Kennesari. The great Soviet encyclopedia, an early edition published before systematic writing of history began, described him as the leader of the national liberation movement of the Caucasian mountain peoples, which was directed against the colonial policy of Tsarist Russia. His denigration began in 1947 at a conference of the Historical Institute of the USSR Academy of Sciences, when one speaker denounced Shamil's movement as not having been one for national liberation, but a struggle for freedom for wolves, for freedom for backwardness, oppression, darkness, Asiaticism. Other conference members did not receive the speech well, and some even reproached Shamil's detractor, and nothing further was heard of the subject for three years. In March 1950, one Geidar Gushemov was given a Stalin Prize for his book History of the 19th Century Scholar and Philosophical Thought in Azerbaijan, in which Shamil was portrayed sympathetically. But only two months later, in May, the prize was rescinded and the prize committee administered a sharp rebuke, declaring that Gushemov's appraisal of Shamil basically distorts the meaning of the movement, which was reactionary and nationalistic, and was in the service of British capitalism and the Turkish Sultan. After that, the history of another minority people was rewritten to meet the needs of the great Russian chauvinism, and the communists call this free cultural development. Perhaps the best example of the communist concept for the rights of the minority peoples of the Soviet Union and of the emptiness of their boast of free cultural development is the wartime liquidation of several entire Muslim peoples. Crimean Tatars, Chechens, Ingush, Balkars, Karachai, as well as the Buddhist Kalmyk people. It is hard to conceive of a clear violation of the promise to permit free cultural development, for how can there be a culture or cultural development if a people is liquidated or dispersed in small units amidst other peoples? How can this be reconciled with the communist pledge as contained in the 1917 proclamation to respect Muslim beliefs and customs, Muslim national and cultural institutions? Stalin and his cohorts attempted at the time to justify this genocide on the grounds of military necessity, but the following statement shows the falsity of this claim. All the more monstrous are the acts whose initiator was Stalin and which are rude violations of the basic Leninist principles of the nationality policy of the Soviet state. We refer to the mass deportations from their native places of whole nations. This deportation action was not dictated by any military necessity. Thus, already at the end of 1943, a decision was taken and executed concerning the deportation of all the Karachai from the lands on which they lived. In the same period, at the end of December 1943, the same lot befell the whole population of the autonomous Kalmyk Republic. In March 1944, all the Chechen and English peoples were deported and the Chechen-English Autonomous Republic was liquidated. In April 1944, all Balkars were deported to faraway places. The Ukrainians avoided meeting this fate only because they were too many of them and there was no place to which to deport them. 
This statement makes clear the callous violation of national minority rights by the Kremlin. And it is not merely a propaganda statement written by some Western anti-communist, but it came from the mouth of Nikita Khrushchev, president head of the Communist Party, during his speech to the party's 20th Congress on 25th of February 1956. He claimed that it was all due to Stalin, but the fact remains that if the Kremlin masters had the power to violate minority rights once in so brutal a fashion, they can do so again, whenever they might so choose. It is simply another illustration of the meaningless of the communist boast about free cultural development. In his well-known essay, Marxism and the National Question, written in 1913, before the communists came to power, Stalin wrote, only the nation itself has the right to determine its destiny. No one has the right forcibly to interfere in the life of the nation, to destroy its schools and other institutions, to violate its habits and customs, to repress its language or curtail its rights. And then, Counter-Revolution in the Peoples of Russia, an article published on 13th of August 1917, Stalin wrote, But no one has the right to interfere in the internal life of a nation and by force correct its mistakes. Nations are sovereign in matters of internal life, and they have the right to manage themselves according to their own desires. The record of 40 years of communist rule, however, shows that every one of these principles professed by the communists before they won power has been systematically and constantly violated. The Kremlin has interfered forcibly in the life of the various minority nations in every conceivable manner. The latter schools and other institutions, for example, mosques and mardasas, has been destroyed. Their languages have been repressed or at least changed and corrupted. Their rights have been curtailed and the right to rule themselves according to their own desires has been infringed. These statements are especially true of the Muslim peoples of the Soviet Union. Once they were subject colonial peoples of Tsarist Russia, today they are subject colonial peoples of Soviet Russia. The only difference is that under Tsarist rule they enjoyed cultural autonomy, whereas today, despite the communist boast of free cultural development, they are deprived of their own culture and are more and more being forced to adopt a culture shaped by the needs of great Russian chauvinism, i.e. they are being Russianized. The other Muslim peoples of the world would do well to reflect on the fate of their unfortunate co-religionists before they accept the communist propaganda now being directed at them. For there can be little doubt that if ever the communists were to gain control of their lands, they would suffer the same fate. Hey guys, Annette here. Glad to have you with us for another episode of The Eastern Border. As you might know if you follow us on Twitter, Facebook or Discord, our show is growing. If you haven't already, this is the perfect time to join our community, as we will soon be delivering exclusive stories from Ukraine and give you an in-depth analysis of what is going on over there. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so by going to our Patreon page on patreon.com slash the eastern border. A big thanks to all of those who are already donating the show would not be possible without you guys. That's it from me now. See you online. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's 
Welcome everybody, this is Steve, and this is the Baked and Awake podcast. Very happy to be joined today by a good friend of mine, fellow podcaster, uh, host of a great show that I'm a big fan of, The Eastern Border, my friend Christoph Sanderson's. Welcome. Hello. Uh, yeah, if you guys are listening to this on The Eastern Border, you heard this all in the intro too, where I explained this whole situation. I'm really honored to be here, and I hope that you like our commentary on this very interesting text and document. We're going to frame our conversation today around a particular document that we just have recently become aware of. Uh, I think both of us had some low-level awareness of this doc for at least the last few months or a year mm-hmm. or so. Um, and I know it's been around for a little longer than that, so we're not representing this as, like, breaking news, okay? But it's something that I think a lot of people still have not heard of at all. And... Uh, that that's live uh, podcasting for you right there. But that is a really interesting document, and it's another document from a resource that I've also but recently become aware of and started to go back to to mine more aggressively for cool and interesting and perhaps important information that pertains, in this case, to a topic that I've already been looking into and that I'm interested to get to when we're chatting about it. But This doc came from a resource called the CIA Reading Room, and this was published by the CIA as a result of one or more Freedom of Information Act or FOIA Act requests from people to see this document and a number of others that have become public domain. They aren't all completely unedited. They aren't all completely unredacted, etc. This particular doc reads pretty cleanly, but... For example, we do not see an author's name on this report, but this doc was obtained from a CIA.gov URL uh, resource that I've gone to before for other documents, a recent document that I talked about on the podcast here, the Gateway Process document. uh, That's the analysis and assessment of the Gateway Process. If you're subscribed to the podcast, just scroll downward in whatever feed you've got that you've already seen you know, and selected this episode of the show from to find that doc and that episode of the podcast. Likewise, uh, we'll get to it, but there are podcast episodes that I've done already that pertain to the topic that we're going to get to. So just to clear this one up, because we have to use podcast insert name here. If you listen to this on the Eastern Border, go scroll down. It's going to be in my show notes. If you listen to this on Baked in the Wake, go scroll down. It'll be on that show notes, too. There you go. 100%. Well, I mean, so we'll not only have the link to the, the CIA.gov doc, we'll have links to Kristop's website and podcast feed. And, and, and your website and, and podcast and, feed. Of course, exactly. So we're looking at the Mole Atlas a little bit for fun as we talk about it, too. Uh, and that's a doc that I've done a short walkthrough of on my YouTube channel, and you guys can check that out. But that is in the context of the mystery of Grand Tartaria, and that's the context in which we came across this document that we're going to talk about today but not read. Christops read it in full, uh, and we've published it along with the text of the doc visually on a in a YouTube video that's out right now and that you can find on my YouTube channel. So the link uh, will be in the show notes for that. Uh, but you can find me on YouTube just by searching Baked and Awake. We thought that it would be important for you to get the whole scope of the document because I was originally intending to read this document and give you comments throughout it. But this way I think we have a more clearer image and uh, we can like you know talk about the document as a whole as well. 
kind of more in-depth and less chaotic. Okay, so awesome. So everybody knows where to find us both, and we're going to make sure to take care of you to get you pointed at the source materials and some any supplemental resources that we deem helpful or necessary for the conversation. Oh, yeah, and uh, one thing, though, this is uh, my second episode from the West Coast. There we go. This well, is also... I'm glad to have you hanging out in the house, in the studio. I do have to say that Seattle is a beautiful city and that your Space Needle is amazing, especially when up close. I like the water tower, though, and the black sun where you can, like, see the Space Needle. That was, that was awesome. The, that was awesome. That's, like, the biggest impression of the thing. That's a uh, volunteer park we went to, yeah. Um, so we are looking at a document today that we've just recently put out for anybody to listen to in full but you can also read it on screen or print it out i find a great way to get the full value out of the document is to read it yeah you I know think so uh like we have it right in front of us here the full title of the doc is national cultural development under communism hence one of the great reasons why we're so fortunate to have had christops read it for us just because the main sort of topic area of history that you handle is is Soviet Cold War era sort of history. And that's not very far off from the era that this document really sort of covers. Uh, this this part of history is a little earlier in history that this document tends to cover this and is, focus on. My dad was born in this year, 1957. There we go. And like, you know, I, as I really collected stuff from my grandparents, they just remember that era by themselves. And that's a big deal, so... That's right. So it was so it was prepared in 57, okay? It refers to events that happened in Soviet history in the 20s and 30s. So we'll understand that about the timeline of this doc. It was approved for release in 1999 and only became more commonly available or understood to be available at all in years since then. Probably, I mean, if you think about the state of the internet in 1999, it was nowhere near as sophisticated as it is today. And so if it did exist in a CIA reading room or an equivalent, uh, I doubt it sounded <laughs> anything as cool as the CIA but, reading room back in 1999. You probably had to still work a little harder to actually get this document through the Freedom of Information back in that time. Oh, man, so. it would also go through dial-up, you know, at least back at home exactly. in Latvia. there you go, there you go. Even through forget, the phone line. Forget, forget about the rest. Like, yeah, it just would have taken longer. It just would have been more laborious, period. Well said. So um, it's a cool doc and an interesting report. And things that struck us about it were just a number of things as Kristaps went through it and read it, especially aloud. Um, and at that point, it was, you know, our second read through probably each of the doc at that point. It sort of begins with a opening salutation, the report. And it's a quotation from a proclamation from 1917 by the Bolsheviks over the signatures of Lenin and Stalin. And uh, it was addressed anyway to, quote, all Muslim toilers of Russia and the East. So the name of the document, as we already mentioned, National Cultural Development Under Communism. So is that title of this doc, is that ironic at all? Is it funny at no all. it's kind of a, a humorous in a way it's a it's a kind of this it describes the document perfectly as it does look at the state of the national it is true right it is true but it doesn't really do much one thing that is important about this title about the year when it was published is that uh, if you remember there was a, an arab israeli war in 57 to, around no, 57. there it, like okay. it, was a bit, it was a bit later it was like in the early 60s okay. but mm-hmm. the tensions between 
the uh, Arabs and in Israel and the Middle East are high at this point and as history showed us there were multiple wars between them and uh, where Soviets supported the Arab side of this and also Soviets interacted and used these Middle Eastern Arab countries with their embassies basically they would get information about the United States and work with people who could get info about the United States from United States embassies in this region at this point in time, this region of, of the North Africa and Middle East is of special interest to the Soviet Union because they hoped to gain some leverage in the Cold War, they said, in 1957. And this is why they were funding all sorts of revolutionary groups in those countries and building socialist support, which would then give them like more easier access, get them into their own sphere of influence. So one thing that needs to be looked at is that, as I see this document, it is intended for some local leaders in these Arab countries, on these Muslim, majority Muslim countries, to their leaders, to their important people over there, so that they would read and learn about how it was like in the Soviet Union, so that to get an edge in the Cold War. Because again, this whole thing the document looks at, remember, he talks about things from 1917, so not like they didn't know it before, they couldn't publish this before, because 1957 is pretty late, Stalin's dead already, right? The, the specific choosing of when this document was prepared, I think, also significant. Is significant. Yeah, because this is like, well, they could have done this earlier and could have tried to warn this, but they're doing this right now, because, hey, they need to gather up stuff so that the Soviets won't get influenced there. Can you do the listeners a favor and give them a taste of what the reading of the doc is like? Can you read this opening paragraph right here, starting oh, at Muslims of Russia and just ending it? Muslims of Russia, Tatars of the Volga and the Crimea, Kyrgyz and Sarts of Siberia and Turkestan, Turks and Tatars of the Transcaucasia, Chechens and mountain peoples of the Caucasus, and all you whose mosques and prayer houses have been destroyed, whose beliefs and customs have been trampled upon by the Tsars and the oppressors of Russia. Henceforth, your beliefs and customs, your national and cultural institutions are forever free and inviolate. Organize your national life in complete freedom. This is your right. Uh, yeah, this go. is so this is the Bolsheviks to the indigenous nation states all around this region yeah. of of Russia that's been because, expanded into because by you them. know because Russia expanded outwards, right. but it, it didn't do it like it happened here in the United States. They did it in more of a British way. So your local army garrison arrives at a place where local tribes are, plants their flag, bribes the leaders, and says, "Okay, you are now um, autonomous region of Russia." How far your lands go? Oh, this far? Great. Adding that to the map. Moving on. And then they would come back and kind of do the policing. That's, wow. It's kind of colonial attitude. We're talking about, like, uh, essentially colonial people, except that they're all inside of mainland Russia. But, you know, Russia is so huge that they cover a lot of those people. Because everyone on the fringes is basically a colonial subject in a weird way. So, so that's how I see it, at least. So this is the Bolsheviks, as we say, kind of telling... The folks, one thing, at the time they're rising to power, fomenting revolution yeah, and taking over Russia, but in the years subsequent to their takeover, right? So this is Lenin and Stalin coming together, and this is actually, this is them making an appeal to the, uh, to the indigenous peoples of the Baltic states. And, and to have Baltics, Caucasus, Siberian regions, everyone else. Okay. What's important to note is that when this proclamation is made, this is one of the very few things that drove Stalin to power. So this is how they got people to support them in deposing the Tsars. 
Yes, because Stalin, at this point, he's, you know, he's the guy from Caucasus, from Georgia himself, and he's intelligent enough, and he's been, you know, up there with the guys enough, because everyone else is either Muscovy Russian, or, well, a lot of Jews were there, and a lot of, you know, Latvians as well. That's kind of ethnicities, up until Stalin started his purges. But at this point, if you want to speak to the peoples, especially concerning peoples in the Caucasus, you need to have a local guy sign your paper for it to be sort of legitimized in those places, you see. And then they just pick Stalin, because he's from Georgia, and this is kind of the first case where Stalin gets in a prime position, where he's mentioned alongside one of the leaders of the whole revolutionary matter, because previously he was a third-rate administrator, but he, you know, happens to be Georgian, which is not very white. It's, uh, you know, I don't know. We, we we call them white. Everyone knows that they're white, but then again, I don't know how these things work. But, but they're nominally some sort of minority. Yeah, well, basically, they're, they're darker-skinned people with mm-hmm. certain features of their culture. I don't even know. So this, this report is about, you know, sort of compiles a couple different sources, and it shows its sources at the end. But they go on to further kind of explain how Lenin and Stalin had positioned their philosophy as regards native peoples. That was one proclamation, the one addressed to all Muslim toilers of Russia and the East. And then a separate one in 1917, 15 November, it also shows here in the report, it goes on to enumerate a few points. It says the Council of People's Commissars had decided to base its activities with regard to the nationalities of Russia on the following principles. One, equality and sovereignty of the nations of Russia. Sounds good. Equality and sovereignty of the nations of Russia. That's that's a pretty cool deal. Sound for that, yeah. Number two, the right of nations to free self-determination, including the right to secede and form independent states. That's amazing. Oh, yeah, you know, just a couple of years later, we have massive civil wars, them trying to take over our Baltic countries and everywhere else, and then there's this Ukrainian thing, and thing with the Poles fighting off the Soviets with Tukhachevsky in front. So safe to say that worked perfectly. That was, that was, that was that totally great. proven as absolutely not completely fake in uh, three years' time, yeah. Uh, let's see, number three, abolition of all national and national religious privileges and restrictions whatsoever. So what they're trying to characterize in native Westerner speak is, although it says abolition of national and national religious privileges, it also is abolition of like restrictions. So some sort of religious freedom statement. Mm -hmm. Okay, right, okay. The problem is that at this point the state is officially atheistic. Oh, shoot. Not not a separation of church and state, it but, is. but it's officially atheistic. Oh, no. And they have their own newspaper, Bezbozhnik, which means the godless. Oh. And then they then they spread that around, and you have people uh, sitting. You have pioneers, local and we're boy about scouts Russia here, right? Yeah, yeah. No, and everywhere else still yeah. in the Soviet Union. Yeah. They had a massive USSR. Will be technically created in 1922, but works. But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. close enough. But yeah, they had like a massive atheism well, they still have campaign. a battle ahead of them at this point. They're, yeah. they're issuing these proclamations yeah, but to like, make their alliances, to get their yes. support from But people. it ended up with basically mm-hmm. basically church being all but made completely illegal. Wow. Like, just in general, any church, any faith whatsoever. Let's see. Because the this, traditional belief, traditional quote is that if you believe in paradise in the afterlife, then you are not devoted enough to build a communist paradise on this earth. Therefore, religion is poisonous to communism, at least in the Soviet sense of the word. 
So let's see, what was uh, number four? Freedom of development for the national minorities and ethnographic groups inhabiting the territory of Russia. Well, two words, Prague Spring. <laughs> that thing what they were trying to do and a lot of other things. But yeah, so basically these proclamations sounded nice at the time. It was really cool. And the document focuses specifically on Muslim peoples. Yeah, it mentions that it kindled great hope, though. Yeah, it yeah. did. It yeah. did. Especially, which is interesting to know. They sound great. Yeah. They sound really high-minded. Also, remember that we're talking about this very not-known fact, which I dedicated an episode to, about how at this point in time... The uh, United States, together with Canada and the British, will invade Russia from North and Arkhangelsk, too. So, like, Americans and, and, like, the Western peoples are coming in, and so the Soviets have to, like, rally the people. So they do these proclamations, and when, you know, they fight back in this unknown war, then the opportunity that the West had to influence people... That was people, that one story that you told on the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, episode. the fact is that... Story. The fact is that... Probably Western values didn't catch on because at that point the Soviets rallied everyone to like fight back the West together with the whites and everything. But in the Civil War, talking the general timeline, not specifically 1917, but there we go. Slight, slight tangent, but a but great episode of the Eastern Border. No, it's that like you guys the thing is, out. the thing is that exactly like you said, they needed they needed the local populations to you know support them because the Civil War was coming. So, uh, you know, so the document, this report, paints. A picture of the Bolsheviks telling one story to make friends, to rise to power. And then these same folks, now communists and part of the USSR a few years later, um, rolling out a number of sort of mandatory programs that were employed widely in education, right, around the country and also in like commerce and in publishing, right? So Mm -hmm. books in whatever state it might be, whether it's... uh, the Crimea or Georgia or in your states as well, right? Yeah. In the Baltic states of, uh, like, Estonia and Latvia and Lithuania. No, you know what Lithuania is, There though. we go. <laughs> uh, these are nations that have their own languages. These are nations that have books published in their own languages and, and histories in their own languages and, and their own written languages, importantly but that all of which are uh, required now to put Russian in front of their native language. And their kids are taught Russian alongside of, or maybe even first, Yeah, in a lot of cases, in ways, like kind of prioritized to their native tongues. And I mean, the doc kind of indicates they don't even really get to publish books that they would have published in their own native language languages exactly. and with their own viewpoints, right? The, Political the, viewpoints exactly. and things. Exactly. That's banned because you have this nice little yeah. thing called the Board of Censorship. The Board of Censorship decides what gets published and what doesn't. And if you decide to even, you know, give in a work that's there, to, you know, with a dissenting opinion, then not only it will not get published, no one would be stupid enough to do that because then the nice men from the KGB appear during the night and you get taken away. You know, that's how it works in the greatest country on planet Earth. So, we were interested in this document and this report very much for its general historical importance, but specifically because it ties into, in some obscure and interesting way, not super obscure, in fact, a very interesting and kind of seemingly obvious or seemingly like, aha, so great uh, kind of way, to the mystery of the Grand Tartaria mud flood mystery, okay, and, uh, you know... Anybody who's just coming to my podcast for the first time, you don't have to start with me. 
uh, but you can. And I've been talking about this mystery and the, if we call it a conspiracy or if we call it a mystery or just an interesting fringe historical topic, alternative history topic, whatever label you want to apply. Grand Tartaria, you can also literally Google Grand Tartaria or YouTube search Grand Tartaria or Mud Flood and find loads of people you know, who are creating content all about this, many of whom are fairly serious researchers and who put together cool visual presentations about it as well. That said, I'm not going to go into the mystery in depth right now with all the background, and this document stands on its own as more than interesting enough. I am slightly more skeptical than, than Stephen here about conspiracy theories in general. Then again, I also know how some edited history, so... For me, this document kind of symbolizes where we can tie together, because, mm-hmm. hey, this is a lot of the real things that happen in the Soviet era, and I know that a lot of you guys love this paranormal conspiracy stuff, so, hey, might be interesting to look at it from that perspective, but we're definitely going to look at some very grim history stories here, because, there we go. There we go. For honestly, uh, one thing that was hard for me to do, and especially when we spoke about like language part, but the oppression of language, that was difficult for me, because the Soviets did that, to a lesser extent than the document reports, at least for the Tartar territories, because we didn't have to change our alphabet. But the control was there. The Russian language got prioritized. For example, my birth certificate is primarily in Russian than in Latvian. But again, I, ha- I have to state that, yeah, this is about the changings of the alphabets in those language parts. That's true, but it happened all through the Soviet Union era, and find it a bit suspicious again because the CIA just repeats and, and pushes this point on so for so much that well, it's kind of hard to find for people to understand and it, there's kind of this hypocrisy on, you know, too, on the CIA part, especially since whatever they did in Nicaragua and other countries, which is kind of Central American countries. So it's kind of interesting that we're reading a document which quite accurately depicts the, the bad things that the Soviets did to my people and, you know, Muslim people and other peoples of the Soviet Union. And it's written by the guys who, you know, I've read a bunch of their histories and conspiracies and real things that they did. And it's it's basically a bear, like um, a wolf or, in your case, no, sorry, an eagle trying to poke out a bear's eyes. Yeah, such is the manner in which the communists respect Muslim beliefs and customs, Muslim national and cultural institutions. Right, so you just actually characterized it a moment ago when you talked about, you know, languages being forcibly mm. changed. This is the section of the document. Here's another area where I'd love to bring you in uh, for it, my friend, and have you uh, read them. Uh, you know, well, shut up, guys. Where's the Tartaria reference anyway, if we have been paying attention and we do know what you're talking about? Okay, well, so here's this, this doc that we found, and yeah, it's a little bit propagandistic, and yeah, it came from an unknown source, and we found it in the CIA reading room, so take it with a grain of salt, right? But here's a neat reference from this doc from 1959. Yeah, and I call this document mostly historically accurate, because I can recognize a lot of things that happened to us it in the feels, Baltic Zulu. It feels that way. Yeah. You know, I, can, I, can, I can believe that someone... Good disinformation might feel that way, I suppose. I guess, but know? this document is mostly accurate. Right. Do you like mm. this, this or let us take the matter of history, which, along with religion, language, and literature, constitute the core of a people's cultural heritage. Here again, the communists have interfered in a shameless manner. For example, on 9th of August, 1944, 
The Central Committee of the Communist Party, sitting in Moscow, issued a directive ordering the party's Tartar Provincial Committee quote, to proceed to a scientific revision of the history of Tartaria to liquidate serious shortcomings and mistakes of nationalistic character committed by individual writers and historians in dealing with Tartar history. End quote. In other words, Tartar history was to be rewritten, was to be falsified. Uh, tangent from me, yeah, so far this document is totally historically authentic. In order to eliminate references to great Russian aggressions and to hide the facts of real course of Tartar-Russian relations. And this was no isolated case. In every Muslim area within the USSR, historians on orders of the Communist Party have rewritten history to distort the facts so that the Russians appear always in a good light. Another tangent, not just in Muslim areas, in every Soviet area. Needless to say, histories which present the facts truthfully have been withdrawn and destroyed so that the present and future generations of Muslims are forever denied the chance of learning the true facts of the nation's past. Third tangent on this single paragraph. And in Russia itself as well, just so the history would be fixed just in the right way, because that's just how the Soviets worked. I can recognize all of this and I relate to that with this whole thing. And we've all seen nice little, you know, photographs which Stalin just erases people and if you speak about those people in some sort of positive way, not the party way, you'll just get eliminated. It's like musical chairs which you always lose and get shot. I was going to say, the, the report, like, the very next paragraph is a story about what they characterize, again, propagandistically somewhat, great Russian chauvinism, but Russians taking a Kazakh hero of the people and identifying him as an enemy of the state and sort of totally rewriting his political and public persona and reputation well, and he goes down in history as a jerk and a turd because yeah, of this is Russian by the way. disinformation. This is the CIA part of this thing. When they say great Russian chauvinism, it kind of implies that they put the blame on the Russian people. Right. Which I feel wrong, because even today, and I'm no fan of Putin This is probably all. written by a Russian asset in Something. Europe. Writing for the CIA, I guess but so. Yeah, speaking in terms that he probably thinks they like. Oh yeah, because because it looks like you know Russian people are one of the kindest, nicest people. They have just been very unlucky with their governments, and I don't blame mm-hmm, Russians mm-hmm. for this. The fact that this is like the fact that this document implies that it's like you know every Russian ever now hates every non-Russian. I kind of don't like that. I don't course, like that about this document. But it kind of comes off this way. But like you said, that that might be one of the reasons. Exactly. I think he's pandering to his audience a little bit. Whoever the writer of this report is. You yep. Know. So a pretty great. I mean, we don't need to run away from there. We can you know look at that that reference a little bit. But it's so great because I mean we've got express reference to Tartaria. Tartar history being rewritten, let us be frank, falsified. You know, these are great, really juicy references for friends in the crowd who are on the Tartaria hunt. If you haven't already come across this document, you know, it's it's easy one to just Google search up based on the title, National Cultural Development Under Communism, or you can just search these show notes and you'll find it there. It speaks directly to the narrative that, like, the conspiracy theorist in me, you know, recognizes, which is, here's the state rewriting history. Yep. Here's us catching them in the act. When I mentioned this to Kristaps, he was somewhat familiar with it. He's like, you know, I remember hearing about Stalin something something. 
about Russian history around that time. Like, you weren't totally ignorant of this when I sort of mentioned, right? I said there was yeah, a connection. There is, like, a, there's like a, in modern day, too, what's important part of this is, like, this day... Um, this is mainstream history is what I was getting at, right? I ish, know, no. you know, ish. I know, right? like, for, for Stalin we really doing. did edit history, so those of you who listen to Eastern Border, you know that Stalin cities are, is our... Stalin cities is a long and dreadful journey. Mm-hmm. Most people know that... It's kind of hard to find, like, when three communist sources cite three different dates, because Stalin literally altered history. It's crazy. And in modern days, they kind of also, they use... There are some really crazy Russian pro-Putin propagandists who are pulling up sort of this nationalistic ideals by stating that, no, Holy Roman Empire was an invention... And that never mm-hmm. existed until like uh, 300 years have been like just written up. Mm-hmm. It was never there. Well, in some cases, a thousand. Some people say yeah, it's a thousand. But they use that to explain why Muscovy Russians, and I'm specific here because there's a bunch of other Russian people out there, uh, but specifically Muscovites, why they are the best supreme nation. It's kind of like Aryan thing, except it's the people from around Moscow area. So that's kind of always a bit shady to look at it, always, because yep. you don't want to be tied up in that crap. It's a red flag for me that I noticed a while ago on yeah. this mystery. Um, luckily, the people who I've found that are doing the best research on it all are coming at this from, I think, a more positive place and a more a place yeah, of historical yeah, accuracy, and they take pains to acknowledge observe and move on that whole sticky yeah. topic because uh, you're not going to find a whole bunch of there's one or two black guys researching this and mm-hmm. talking about it okay and uh, one in particular dane calloway has certainly been aware of it and i'll mention him and leave a note to his youtube channel in the show notes as well this is the kind of thing that you'll see a lot of europeans researching looking into and all about it right now so this is the story of that it area of the world in large part Um, to my my European friends look I have been walking around these parts and explaining that yes we're we're different around them if if you French guy who listens to this episode think that yes they do call us Europeans but then again hey we just have to swallow it because well in a way we all are I do need to work on that well (laughs) I'll get better at that after I've visited your part of the world it is totally fine but like I, it's bad. See the term. You, I know that the term European means something very different here than it does back at home. You have to understand that too. Well, you have to acknowledge this because it, it also carries way different connotations. And well, back at home, we haven't experienced a lot of the things that people have here. So I can kind of understand what they would think that you know Europeans are a thing, even though every European listener of this show knows that it isn't. But. Uh, but but we have to acknowledge and accept this fact, and they have the right to say the term European. There, I have said this, and I'm Christoph Andreasons from Riga, Latvia, from EU. It's legit now. Americans can just use Europeans to qualify us. They're allowed to. Thank you, my friend. <laughs> I hold you all in the highest esteem. I really do. I do. So, I don't think we need to go into it too much further right now, today, with this doc. Um, what we have in front of us is a really interesting historical report that was prepared for the CIA in 1959, and then we've gotten it decades later into the public sphere, and we're coming to understand it now in the context of a lot of different mysteries. To me, the armchair wannabe philosopher and full-time conspiracy guy, I find it 
fascinating because here's a big paragraph in the middle of this CIA document that references my Tartaria mystery. So I'm like, yes, home run. You should really check out the Tartaria stuff. Right. Check out the Tartaria stuff because you know what? I'm a skeptic, but it's interesting. It's interesting as a, even as, even even if go. it might be just a thought experiment, it's a really good one because it makes you you know look at things differently, think about stuff differently, you know, twist your mind a bit. Even if as a mental exercise, I am I support you guys looking out and going out and checking out the Tartaria theory, which is interesting. So then that's the thing. We're not. I've done enough content on it at this point that we don't need to go into it right now for you. You can go back and listen to my old shit. This is an episode about a few different things. A great opportunity to take a look at the CIA reading room and ask ourselves how relatively valuable, because there's dozens, hundreds, thousands, guys, thousands of documents on CIA reading room. All right, so this at CIA.gov. You can go there and look up and do searches by keyword and stuff, too. So, like, I haven't even begun to really go there and, like, type in a keyword about something. Like, what if I want to go there and type in gnomes? And see what comes up. Gnomes like, you know, Gnomeo and Juliet. Okay, like, secrets of the gnomes. Like, <laughs> you know, you don't know what you're going to get on that. Anyway. Um, for for your listeners and for but, you too, I have mm-hmm. a thing. I'm going to look it up at my... Exactly. See, thing that I want you to look at at some point, because, you know, you did these theories. There we go. There is a site called Shodan.io. Okay. I'll open it up. Yeah, I was going to say, S-H-O-D-A-N. Yeah. If you played System Shock 2, you know the reference and you're afraid already. It sounds cool. It's an evil AI. or something. See, this is the webpage where you can look up the Internet of Things. Every every device of yours, every device of yours is, like, calculated there. And, like, if you are, if your device uses Internet, this is the Google for Internet of Things. The problem is... Is the search engines for refrigerators, webcams, washing machines, mm-hmm. nuclear power plants, mm-hmm. experimental research facilities, mm-hmm. the Internet of Things. And not only if you get the IP of the thing you want to find, you will, uh, you know, find the device where it's tied to. This nice page also shows you the vulnerabilities this thing has. This is what I'm kind of afraid of, and this is recommended to me by Aretz. You know, remember Aretz? He was the transhumanist guy on my show a couple episodes back. Nice. Uh, yeah, and, and he, he just showed me this website because he works with, like, AI research a lot. And this is I don't know scary. how I missed that episode, but I'm going to listen yeah. to it. This and I love just, that you're mentioning this right I'm now. I'm telling you for, for you and for your listeners, because this is this about is how, so good. how the global network may fuck up our plans. How can we, like, get hackers do things, because at this day and age, uh, this has been demonstrated that you can remotely hack uh, people's heart pacers. Right. Yeah. Well, and we know about vulnerabilities on people's vehicles driving down the road yes. at highway speeds. And th- there is a Google yep. for your power plant, nuclear power plant, or your phone, or whatever, in which someone of interest can easily just... By just by knowing your IP, and they can find out your IP because, oh, hey, you used a wireless spot in Starbucks... Oh, too bad. Someone probably already has your IP address anyways with your device. There you go. Uh, it's super easy to get those. And if you just put an IP here, you can find their vulnerabilities. You can find anything. And this is this site was created as, as a warning of what could happen. As a warning, why should we take real care when implementing AI and the Internet and everything? Because everything's connected. But is that, like, always a good thing? Now, and just to clarify, do you have a personal stake in Shodan? No. 
right? This is a friendo that you know. My, a friend of mine, who... a friend of mine, showed me this webpage, and his research partners from across the world have like made this. It's, so this it's is really, really friend of a friend at most kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, it's a, it's it's a just, scientific. Yeah. They make no money from this. This is a free scientific project. There are no ads there. There's nothing yeah, there. Exactly. I don't gain anything of this. So it, just, I'm uh, not seeing a bunch of ads on their page either. They do have something for pricing here. Because you can like purchase their services, like a high-powered version of it. Sure, small business and corporate freelancer. You have to Um, pay to kind of use it if you want to get a bunch of results and whatnot, whatnot. But mm -hmm. I do not because you can have test searches for free, Mm -hmm. and this is for their commercial packages. But I I do not endorse them. It's just that developed as a thing because there is a free API plan. Yep, free API. Simply sign up for a free account, and we you'll be able to start using the. Yeah. So you know what's cool to me about that is that it's you know you're you're talking about a common concern that we all yeah. have these days, which is you know we're living in a continuously connected world yeah. that's increasingly connected, like saturated more and more. Now, right now in this house, we don't have a dishwasher online yet. All right, mm. but we have one or two routers. We have a the room that. Uh, is downstairs next to my room has an Xbox in it that's connected to the internet. The room in the living room, there's an Xbox and a router, both of which, and a smart TV. So those are three devices that all have separate connections to the internet. And yeah, these guys basically, they start this project and they use this as a warning, but then they figure out that yes, corporations will pay these guys so that they will have access to your IP so that they would find out you know, I was going to say, what, including the vulnerabilities, right? Yeah, including that stuff, and then, then you'll get, like, ultra-targeted ads, even more than you have been already. All right. This well, is the real danger. This is my conspiracy theory, but there, there are go. things, no, man. I've talked about the Internet of Things a number of times on this podcast, and that's why I like that this is something that you brought up, because it is on target for me and my audience, so... Uh, check it out, everybody. I think check out Show.io and decide if it's a uh, helpful tool. So, Chris Apps, I want to thank you for joining me today and you know spending the time that you have both out on our field trips uh, out in the field in, in both Spokane and in Seattle. Uh, dude. Looking at Tartarian architecture. I have, and it reminds right. me of home, really. I want to thank you for that. This is awesome. Fun. It was really fun because... And why, you know, we back at home in Europe, and again, hashtag European listeners, you'll understand me when I say that we're used to old architecture, but the nature here and the sheer size of everything is like super more widespread. It's kind of different. So when you see some old building here in the States, you truly are like, huh, how did that, you know, endure so long? Because nothing else has. Everything else looks super new. Yeah, maybe and, what's it doing here? Yeah, maybe exactly. That's the thing is, like, you have a lot of places where, like, this is, like, this old building in the center of, like, a bunch of surrounded by, like, skyscrapers and whatever. Well, that's the thing. And I hope we're not totally done ever talking about this topic on any level. Uh, oh, no, no. As soon as I get know. back home again, I will never speak to you in my life, of, of course. <laughs> I will block you on all social media. Uh, yes. And we shall have no contacts. Yes. No contacts. <laughs> Perfect score. <laughs> yeah, no, of course, dude. All right, I love it. All right, so everybody, thank you for hanging out with us today and uh, checking out the National Cultural Development under Communism. You can check out Kristaps reading it in full over on YouTube on my Baked and Awake YouTube channel. Probably find some more fun stuff in that CIA reading room in the coming months. I'm not, I'm not sure yet what I, what I've got, what's on the 
menu before then, but it's a cool new resource. And I'm going to call it a mainstream sort of historical repository, you know, with the grain of salt that we know who gave it to us every time. Um, but until it's been totally debunked as just a thorough funnel of miserable disinformation, which may come to light in coming years by everybody else. But right now I'm, I'm kind of digging it. So it's, it's a cool place to go to look. I'm going to start checking it when I check other unrelated mysteries and things that sound like a conspiracy to me. I might roll on over to that CIA.gov and just type in the keywords that most occur to me with whatever the mystery is and see if I can find a CIA report on that. You know what I mean? Oh, man. I have to save that for, for my guys. Well, this is probably the first Eastern Border episode recorded like while fucking baked and awake. There you go. All right. We were because, baked and awake. We we did smoke. We didn't talk about it, but... Because <laughs> back at home, this stuff's super illegal, so I, as a honest tourist, I have to try it out. Feels amazing, though. Secondly, for uh, my people from the Eastern Border, check out the Baked and Awake podcast. Thanks for listening. And I'll be home soon, then I'll be gone to Ukraine for three months. I'm going to keep in touch with, with Stephen here, but hey, I'm going to be trying to do my best journalism. At any rate, well, for me, it's... До свидания, товарищи. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.